This is Spacetime Series 26, Episode 111, or broadcast on the 15th of September 2023. Coming up on Spacetime, a Venus flyby sends the Parker Solar Probe on a record-setting flyby around the Sun. 50 new neighbouring exoplanets discovered nearby. And NASA's SpaceX Crew-6 returns safely to Earth. All that and more coming up on Spacetime. Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. NASA's Parker Solar Probe has just undertaken a new gravity-assist flyby of Venus, which has slingshotted the spacecraft towards a record-setting series of flights around the Sun starting this month. Travelling at over 24 kilometres a second, Parker Solar Probe passed just 4,003 kilometres above the Venusian surface as it curved around the shroud-covered planet and headed back in towards the Sun. Mission managers at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory in Maryland kept close contact with the spacecraft during its flyby using NASA's Deep Space Communications Network. The only exception was an eight-minute loss of signal when the planet Venus itself was between the Earth and Parker. Mission's operation manager Nick Pinkins says the spacecraft remains on track to make its closest flyby of the Sun yet. Venus's gravity assists are essential to guiding Parker progressively closer towards the Sun. The spacecraft relies on the planet to reduce its orbital energy, and this in turn allows it to travel closer to the Sun, where since 2018 it's been exploring the origins and secrets of the solar wind, the continuous stream of charged particles flowing out from the Sun and bathing the entire solar system. This latest manoeuvre was Parker's sixth of seven planned gravity assists using Venus. It served as an orbit manoeuvre applying velocity change called delta-v on the probe and reducing its orbital speed by around 9,547 kilometres an hour. And the manoeuvre also changed the spacecraft's orbit, setting the Parker Solar Probe up for its next five close passes of the Sun, the first of which will take place on September 27. On each of these close approaches, known as perihelions, the Parker Solar Probe will set or match its own speed and distance records, coming to within just 7.3 million kilometres of the visible surface of the Sun, while travelling at around 635,000 kilometres per hour. And that is faster than any other man-made object has ever travelled. Launched aboard a Delta IV Heavy rocket from Space Launch Complex 37 at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida back in August 2018, the Parker Solar Probe is on a seven-year mission studying the Sun's outer atmosphere, Corona. The mission's undertaking 24 high eccentric orbits around the Sun, flying deep into the Corona, as far as 6 million kilometres above the Sun's visible surface. It'll trace the flow of energy that heats the Corona and accelerates the solar wind determining the structure and dynamics of the magnetic fields and source of solar winds, and work out the mechanisms which are accelerating and transporting energetic particles. The $1.5 billion spacecraft carries four principal scientific instruments. They're designed to study magnetic fields, plasma and energetic particles, and capture images of the solar wind. 
The Electromagnetic Fields Investigation, or FIELDS, will make direct measurements of electric and magnetic fields, as well as radio waves, pointing flux, absolute plasma density, and electron temperature. It's composed of two fluxgate magnetometers, a search coil magnetometer, and five plasma voltage sensors. The Integrated Science Investigation of the Sun, or ISIS, package will measure energetic electrons, protons, and heavy ions. It's composed of two independent instruments, EPI high and EPI low. The wide field imager for solar probe, or WISPA, is made up of optical telescopes that can acquire images of the corona and inner heliosphere. The solar wind electrons, alphas and protons, or sweep instrument, is an experiment that counts electrons, protons and helium ions in order to measure their properties such as velocity, density and temperature. Its primary instruments are two electrostatic analyzers and a Faraday cup. This is space-time. Still to come, the discovery of 50 new exoplanets in our own cosmic neighborhood. And NASA's SpaceX Crew-6 returns safely to Earth. All that and more still to come on space-time. Astronomers have discovered a treasure trove of dozens of exoplanets, that is, planets orbiting stars other than our Sun, and they're all in our own galactic neighbourhood. The catch, reported in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics, includes 33 newly discovered planets, 26 planets confirmed from previous transit surveys, and a reanalysis of 17 other known planets. Now, four of the planets are potentially habitable, meaning they're rocky terrestrial worlds and they orbit in the habitable zone of their host stars. That's the area from their star where temperatures would allow liquid water, essential for life as we know it, to exist on a planet's surface. All of the planets are orbiting low-mass stars within 60 light-years of the Sun. The new observations were made by the Carmenis Consortium using a 3.5-metre telescope at the Cala Alto Observatory in Spain. This telescope's equipped with both visible light and infrared spectrographs, thereby allowing detailed radio velocity measurements to be made of the stars in order to look for any telltale wobble of the star caused by the gravitational tug of an orbiting planet. One of the study's authors, Ignacio Ribas, from the Institute of Space Sciences in Catalonia, says the new data set allows scientists to calculate how often stars host planets. Ribas says the results suggest an occurrence of 1.4 planets per star. And that's interesting, because NASA's planet-hunting Kepler Space Telescope found a similar rate using the transit method, in which the light from a host star is briefly blocked out by a passing or transiting planet. The fact that two different planet-hunting techniques have now both obtained similar results is significant, because it provides good evidence that nearly all low-mass stars probably have at least one orbiting planet. Interestingly, 12 of the newly discovered planets were large Jupiter-mass gas giants, which are not normally found orbiting low-mass stars. The authors think these could have been formed due to gravitational instabilities, which are prone in massive cold disks of planetary material surrounding young nascent stars. Still, their discovery does raise new questions about planetary formation processes and the establishment of planetary system architecture. 
Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, says it's good, robust work on a large sample scale. Yeah, now these are exoplanets we're talking about. These are planets that are circling other stars, not our sun. So the scientists haven't found 50 new planets in our solar system. These are in other planetary systems. So this particular group of scientists have been spending the last five years using a telescope in Spain to study several hundred stars all within 60 light years of Earth. And that's really close by in space terms. And what they were doing was they were hunting for signs of planets circling those stars. And so they've now announced the discovery of 33 new planets. They've confirmed the presence of another 26 that had already been spotted. And they've done some analysis on another 17 planets that also had previously been um, candidates of, um, that, that, that the suspicion was that they were, they were planets as well. Now, six of these planets out of, out of this total are considered to be potentially habitable. And what scientists mean by that these days is that the likely temperatures that exist on the surface of these planets mean that liquid water could exist, not frozen as ice or, or too hot and then it's just a gas. But what they're looking for is planets that have, could have liquid water on their surfaces because here on Earth, for instance, everywhere there is liquid water, there's life, even if it's just microscopic. It's everywhere they've, they've looked where there's water, there's life. Even, you know, in, in icy places where there are little cracks where some water exists, you know, tiny amount of liquid water, there's life in it. So Even Kelvin is um, underground, yeah. Uh, anywhere. Look, in, inside nuclear reactors, for goodness sake. So <laughs> there are extremophiles, they call them, things that can live basically anywhere, these little, little microscopic things. So um, that's why they're looking for planets that might have, um, or at least the temperatures that, uh, that are good for water. One other thing the team worked out was, was how many planets, on average, stars have. And from the, the data that they were doing, it turns out that it, um, there's 1.4 planets per star is the average. That's a bit like the you know average family's got, what, 2.4 kids or something? I used to have 2.4 kids, I think it was. So it's an average, of course. But this actually matches what other scientists had come up, had come up with before using different sort of techniques, so it sort of confirmed that as being, you know, pretty solid bit of data. And one final thing the team has done also is it's worked out ways to help tell the difference between um, indications of the presence of a planet circling a star and things happening on the star itself, such as star spots. Star spots are similar to sunspots, the dark areas, cooler areas on the surface of the star. And, and this is important because the technique they're using to detect planets for this team was looking for tiny dimming of the, the, the light coming from all of these stars. Um, the transit then, method. Yeah, transit method where uh, a planet's gone in front and so it's blocked out a little bit of the starlight so the starlight seems to dim a little bit. Well, a star spot can do that too. If you've got a big dim, you know, the cooler, darker spot on, the, on a star and it rotates into view, that can sort of masquerade as a, um, as a planet or vice versa. So they've been able to um, work out ways to um, uh, sort of overcome that and, and have more confidence to what they are seeing when they see a star dimming is actually one of these exoplanets and not a star spot. Or, or they've been able to say, no, that is a star spot. So that's of interest to astronomers who are looking for star spots. So there you go, uh, 50 more planets and uh, within 60 light years of Earth. So um, there are a lot of planets out there. That's Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And this is Space Time. Still to come, NASA's SpaceX Crew-6 returns safely to Earth. And later in the science report, scientists have discovered a new type of water ice. All that and more still to come on Space Time.
Well, after spending 186 days in orbit, NASA's SpaceX Crew-6 has returned safely to Earth, splashing down in the North Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida. We do have deorbit burns start. So a quick recap, within the last 10 minutes, Dragon jettisoned its trunk and initiated the deorbit burn. For those operations, NASA and SpaceX closely coordinate with the United States Coast Guard to establish a safety zone to ensure public safety and for the safety of those involved in the recovery operations as well as the crew on board the returning spacecraft. We are now within the atmospheric entry phase of the return for the Crew-6 crew. Once again, the plasma buildup on the exterior of the capsule results in our inability to command or communicate with the Dragon capsule during this time. This is heading towards the Atlantic coast of uh, near Jacksonville, Florida. So recovery teams are in position off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida, and we are still targeting our expected splashdown time of 9.17 p.m. Pacific, 12.17 a.m. Eastern. We only have about a minute and some change of this blackout period anticipated. And again, there's some variation on when we can hear from the crew. Dragon, SpaceX, comm check. So at this point, we're going to hear SpaceX core begin to hail. As Gary said, this blackout period is estimated. So we're now beginning to reach out to the crew to see if we've regained that communications capability. What you're Dragon, SpaceX, comm check. And we hear Crew-6 from inside the cabin on the back end of the blackout. Copy, Dragon. We see a healthy flight computer. Expect automated chute deployment. SpaceX, Dragon, collapses. Up next will be the deployment of the drogue parachutes. All right, so that call out, just letting the crew know that uh, they can expect to have the initial uh, parachute deployment, that is um, the drogue parachutes, and that those typically deploy about uh, 18,000 feet. At that point in time, the capsule is going around 350 miles per hour. At the time that the main parachutes are deployed, um, just uh, seconds later, they'll be going around 120 miles per hour. Drogue pyros have fired, and we have good confirmation of drogue shoots. Two drogues. Dragon nominal descent rate and recovery team reports a visual on two healthy drogues. Space Dragon copy, should see Drogue shoot jettison here momentarily. At this point in time, Dragon has saved all of its propulsion systems and is now uh, has already terminated that nitrox suit and cabin purges. Those were helping to keep the crew cool during the reentry. Looks like we have four very beautiful and healthy main parachutes. Dragon, we see a nominal descent rate on four healthy mains. SpaceX Dragon copies and SpaceX Dragon coming up on 1,000. So there's that confirmation. Copy, 1,000 meters. Confirmation of those four healthy chute deployments. Now standing by for splashdown. At the point of splashdown, the capsule will be going about 15 or 16 miles per hour, continuing to decelerate from a, a rate of, uh, from a speed of about uh, 120 miles per hour. 800. So we will now begin. Copy, 800. To hear Commander Steve Bowen call out the altitude um, as they approach the water surface. That is again in meters. Landing in water is simpler and provides more margin against unlikely parachute issues. Uh, we had to learn how to make Dragon waterproof, but once you do that, it's very much a rinse, review, reuse type process. 600. Copy, 600. 600 meters and the descent rate is as predicted. Dragon Endeavor with the crew six uh, team members on board. Dragon, we see 400. 
We're now about 400 meters above the ocean surface. Surface dragon 200 brace for splashdown. Copy braced for splashdown. Again, the seats have been rotated in a position to take the loads of uh, re-entry and parachute deployment as well as splashdown. The crew is braced. We are inside 100 meters. Dragon Endeavor continuing its slow descent, splashdown. Those parachutes are then cut and released. Dragon Endeavor has now returned home. NASA astronauts Steve Bowen, Woody Hoberg, Sultan Al-Nayadi, and Andre Fedyaev. Space that's Dragon splashdown. We are in water rifting. Copy splashdown, and we see main chutes cut. After a 17 hour return journey from space, Crew 6 is home. Their Dragon capsule Endeavour was quickly retrieved by the SpaceX recovery vessel Megan, formally ending their six month mission to the International Space Station. While on station as part of Expedition 69, the four-man crew participated in hundreds of experiments, three spacewalks preparing the Station 4 and eventually installing two new IROSA or International Space Station rollout solar arrays which are designed to augment power generation for the orbiting outpost. The experiments and technology demonstrations undertaken by the mission included assisting a student robotic challenge, studying plant genetic adaptions to space, and monitoring human health in microgravity to prepare for exploration beyond low Earth orbit. The astronauts also released Saskatchewan's first satellite, which is designed to test new radiation detection and protection systems which derive from melanin, which is found in many living organisms, including humans. The journey marked the fourth flight for the Dragon capsule Endeavour, which first flew on SpaceX Demonstration Mission 2 in May 2020. The spacecraft will now be returned to Florida for inspection and processing at SpaceX's refurbishing facility at Cape Canaveral, where teams will inspect the capsule, analyse data on its performance and prepare it for its next mission. The Crew-6 mission is part of NASA's commercial crew program and its return to Earth follows the launch last week of NASA's SpaceX Crew-7 mission, beginning yet another long-duration science expedition. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study is focused on one of the most common features of the autism spectrum disorder, that is, reduced levels of eye contact compared with neurotypical people. Although eye contact is a crucially important part of everyday interactions, scientists have been limited in studying the neurobiological basis for live social interactions with eye contact in people on the spectrum because of the inability to image the brains of two people simultaneously. However, a report in the journal PLOS One now shows how new innovation technology has allowed researchers to image two individuals simultaneously during real-life interactions. Both participants were fitted with caps which had lots of sensors on them that emitted light into the brain and also recorded changes in light signals with information about brain activity during both face gaze and eye-to-eye contact. The researchers then analysed brain activity during brief social interactions between neurotypical people and those on the spectrum using functional near-infrared spectroscopy. They found that during eye-to-eye contact, participants on the spectrum had significantly reduced activity in the dorsal parietal cortex compared to neurotypical people. 
they found that neural activity in these regions was synchronous between neurotypical participants during real eye-to-eye contact, but not during gaze at a video face. On the other hand, the expected increase in neural coupling was not observed in people on the spectrum, and this is consistent with the differences in social interactions. The findings provide a better understanding of the neurobiology of autism and general underlying neural mechanisms that drive typical social connections. An Australian study has revealed that plants can't effectively remove toxic gasoline fumes, including cancer-causing compounds such as benzene, from indoor air. The study found that the ambient small green wall containing a mix of indoor plants was highly effective at removing harmful cancer-causing pollutants, with 97% of the most toxic compounds removed from the surrounding air in just eight hours. The study, which has not yet been peer-reviewed, was funded by the plant company Ambius. Scientists have discovered a new type of water ice. The findings reported in the journal Physical Review B shows that the transformation to an ionic state occurs at far lower pressures than previously thought. Like many other materials, water can form different solid materials based on variable temperatures and pressure conditions. It's just like carbon turning either into diamond or graphite. However, water's unusual in that it comes in at least 20 solid forms of ice, and they've just found another one. Zach Gran and colleagues from the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, made the discovery after developing a new method of measuring the properties of water under high pressure. Their work involved first squeezing ice between the tips of two diamonds, freezing into several jumbled ice crystals. It was then subjected to laser heating, which melted it before it quickly reformed into a powder-like collection of tiny crystals. By incrementally raising the pressure and periodically blasting it with lasers, Grand and colleagues observed the cubic ice V2 transition into a new structure of tetragonal symmetry, which they're calling ice V3. While new and unusual types of ice are unlikely to be found naturally on Earth's surface, they could exist deep inside the planet's mantle and in the crust and upper mantle of other worlds, therefore could provide conditions suitable for life as we know it. A new study shows that people who tend to see images or hear voices where there are none are also more likely to believe in conspiracy theories and paranormal phenomena. One of the most important tasks of the perception system of our brains is to identify meaningful patterns in the streams of sensations received by our sensory organs. This is the basis of our ability to identify objects in our environment and interact with them. However, Tim Mendham from Strand Skeptic says, sometimes human brains show a tendency to seek out and find patterns that don't actually exist. Apophenia is a sort of umbrella term for when people see or hear things that aren't there. You're seeing things like you're seeing a face in the clouds. That's paradox. Specifically, yes, paradox is specifically the visual, but apophenia comes, you're hearing sounds, uh, you're hearing voices, you know, not uh, necessarily when sound It sounds like your dead relative calling you or something like that. Yeah, not quite, not quite that. But you're hearing ghosts and that sort of thing. You hear oh, a right. creak. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, your house settling and you suddenly think of someone walking through your house. Right, because, right? That, because uh, pareidolia is that when, when you're seeing things that do look like faces in clouds, that's, that's yeah. not quite the same thing as what you're talking about then. Well, apophenia is a broader term. Pareidolia is included in it, really. Okay. Okay. 
So it's the you know, Apophenia is sort of looking at the whole topic. So yeah, there's audio, there's visual, and there's all sorts of other. Yeah, there's anything in which you're thinking you see a pattern where there is none, and the pattern is often a, a face or a visual yeah. thing that you are familiar with, and that's not really there. So that's what this covers. It's a normal thing. People do it all the time. Well, I mean, it's part, you, it's part of our genetic makeup. You yeah, should protect yeah. us in ancient times when we lived in caves and. Yeah. So what what happens is that people who have this tendency on a continuing basis, more than just normal basis of seeing things and say, oh, isn't that amusing? But who really believe it and yeah, take it to the extreme also have a tendency to believe, apparently according to this research that was done on students in Switzerland, that they have a tendency to believe pseudo-theories, conspiracy theories and in the paranormal. So they're seeing realities, if you like, in things where they don't exist, where the reality doesn't exist. What they actually did a survey on, they asked people if they, you know, if they see things, through visual patterns, audio patterns, auditory signals, interpreting events or data as sort of like a coincidence or it goes beyond coincidence. And then also, if they then also believe in certain conspiracy theories and paranormal beliefs and a whole range of things. Apparently there is an index or a scale called the proneness to paranormal scale. People who are prone to paranormal beliefs also prone to apophenia issues, uh, pareidolia, etc., and also prone to tend to be to conspiracy theories. Now, this is one study. It'd be great to see it replicated to see how it works out. But it's just basically saying that the psychological mechanisms behind the perception of non-existent patterns might be the same mechanisms that make one endorse beliefs without evidence. So you're seeing things that aren't there, surprise, surprise, and you're believing things that also are probably not there. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 